This episode of Taboo, we discuss an important topic that has dominated headlines over the last 20 years. There have been royal commissions, inquiries and high-profile court cases on this subject. This week, we discuss sexual assault. Are you having any personal problems at home? Girl trouble, love trouble of any kind? Uh, Drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Uh, If you do them, you're bad. God is coming to you. I never thought I'd be so happy to be a virgin. Isn't that like taboo? Taboo. 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 Welcome to the podcast willing to take on any issue. You're listening to Taboo. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Two Boo Podcast, T-W-O-B-O-O, the two signifying that 20 years later we're doing a new version, a revised version, a 2.0 version of the Taboo University radio program that first aired more than 20 years ago. I'm Sean Costello. I'm joined as always by Melanie Skinner. We're recording as always on the lands of the Ngunnawal and the Gambri people. We're so grateful to their elders, past, present and emerging for letting us do so. We want to respect those elders, respect that culture, the longest continuing culture in the world. So I'm joined in the studio, as always, by Mel. Hi, Mel. Howdy. How are you feeling about this week's topic? Oh, listen, looking back, uh, this was probably the hardest topic that we discussed on our time doing university radio and um, I'm feeling... Like it's still a very important conversation for us to have and one that unfortunately uh, has not, like you said in the introduction, progressed potentially as well as what we would have hoped in 20 years. And some incredibly brave people have stood up in the most trying of circumstances, the most challenging circumstances. But something that will be really great to speak to our experts again is how far have we come after all of that discussion and debate and, and bravery. Oh, a lot of bravery and I don't think we would be here. Um, these incredible people have been able to bring to light some of the important conversations we as a society need to, to have. As I said, perhaps it's worth setting that context for where you and I were coming from 20 years ago, which was a, which was a real place of ignorance. Part of that was some of the messaging that we were receiving as university students at the time. Yeah, so at the time uh, we were on a university campus where there was um, a – a series of rapes rapes that had happened on campus and if you were to work late at university library or or have late lectures there was a security service that could escort you back to resis or back to your car that was the environment that we were were in um and so it was a very hot topic at the time i guess when we were doing this interview initially i think um thinking back it was one of the most educated conversations that we had because Bridie and Tim were, were great at unpacking some of the, the nuances to language, I think, that was important, which we're probably more embraced now, um, but also just some of the myths that were carrying around at that time. So for this episode of Tubu, we're joined by Bridie, who 20 years ago worked for the Canberra Rape Crisis Centre and Tim, who 20 years ago worked for the service assisting male survivors of sexual assault, also known as SAMHSA. We will, um, in the show notes, for those that may find the subject matter that we're talking about today confronting, provide a number of services that you can access uh, to assist you with that. Um, just so grateful to have Bridie and Tim here again, 20 years after we last spoke. Hi, Bridie. <laughs> hi, thanks for having me back. <laughs> hi, Tim. Yeah, hi, same. It's How so, exciting. It is really great. It's a little studio is probably about the same size, but there's a bit more tech in here now. So this was a professional passion of both of yours in 1999. Um, Bridie, maybe starting with you, have you continued to work in this space? Yeah, for the most part. Um, for the most part, my whole life's been in the space of violence against women, um, whether that's in policy or frontline. So it's changed places, but yes, it has remained my passion, which sounds like a weird thing to say. <laughs> Tim? Yes, so in 1999, I'd been working with Bridie at the Rape Crisis Centre for just a couple of years, and I continued till 2004, and then I moved to Sexual Health and Family Planning, ACT, and I felt like it was really interesting to do this switch from a place that focused on all these negative harms associated 
with sexual behaviour to somewhere that was trying to celebrate all the positive things about it and how siloed they were. And I really valued that I could bring a perspective mm. that was about our lives are much more messy than that. The good and the bad and mm. the harmed and the joyful all sort of sit in a really messy matrix. Um, so I have stayed in the work, I think. Um, and certainly we view sexual violence where I am now as a key part of our prevention agenda, but it's with a much broader agenda around health and wellbeing overall. So you're working for a quite an innovative service at the time, SAMHSA. SAMHSA's still around? Yeah, yeah. SAMHSA's still going as a program at the Canberra Rape Crisis Centre. Um, it's got a, a much more stronger focus on counselling uh, than some of the community education, awareness raising, uh, I guess activist kind of things that I felt like we were doing sort of experimentally for, the, for that service, for that program at the time. It was something that I learned a lot from working alongside Bridie. Uh, for all those years. It was one of the best jobs I ever had. So we're going to play a clip now from 20 years ago uh, where we've defined sexual assault and play it back to you and, and then ask about that. An act of violence that uses sex as a weapon, basically. Would you agree, mm-hmm. Do you agree with that one, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. Um, can be can be touching, can be um, sexual innuendo it can be um, anything of a sexual nature that's used to to hurt someone to put them down to violate them humiliate yet have a very broad definition i get primarily it's about power it's about overpowering and humiliating somebody yeah absolutely i think um you know rape is about power is a bit of a, a cliche at times but um I think it's really important that we look at it as as an act of power and an act of violence, and um, and sex is the weapon in the moment. That it could equally equally be a fist. So, listening back to the definition, do you think it's changed at all in twenty years? Me, yes. Hmm. I think I wouldn't be as black and white about about an act of violence hmm. and an act of power using sex as the violence. I think for me, there's a whole lot of stuff that's I've thought about over the last 20 years about privilege and, yeah, that I think I'd have a slightly different take on that now. There's an amazing, and I knew I'd get this in early, and you all know it's coming, Tim. There was an amazing book and a TED Talk, and they were also on conversations by this couple called South of Forgiveness, and it was an 18-year-old Australian who raped his Icelandic girlfriend, and she contacted him 20 years later and said, you messed up my life, and he said, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, and they had this process of reconciliation and truth-telling, which they had in South Africa, which is appropriate for truth-telling and accountability, and he says in that that he did it because he could, and so there is definitely power in that. But there's something else about privilege that goes along with that that I think was missing in the nuances of that definition that I gave back then. And he, sorry, so his sense of privilege that he that he could do it. Yep, yep. Tim, I still think what we said is right, but I also agree. I think in the last twenty years we've been stepping more into the nuance of the conversation that you have to start somewhere with black and white, and then and then you move into where it gets messy and complex. And I think we're more willing to have the messy, complex bit of the conversation maybe than we were 20 years ago, where maybe. we really needed to say mm. it's this so that it couldn't be mm. blurred. So maybe it's always been complicated, but we're we're ready to have a more complicated, sophisticated conversation about about it now, perhaps. No? I, I'm probably more jaded than Tim on this one. I'm no. not sure we are ready, and I think mm. we keep missing the point because we won't have that conversation about our brothers and our partners and I think that's what was groundbreaking for me about South of Forgiveness is this really average, good-looking, well-brought-up Australian man. Like it's not that picture and you could see but I think we get stuck where it's like whether if it's my brother or my partner that does this that somehow we're still othering the act of mm. sexual violence that they're a rapist they become it becomes all consuming and so I think that's why we get divided where people are very strongly down one side or the other or whether they believe a situation occurred is because of that dichotomy because I don't think we're ready to have the conversation that says I love this man and he did this act mm. but Tim's probably more optimistic about that than me I don't know about more optimistic. I'm still banging my head against the brick wall is probably what I'd say. And I think what has moved in, say, the last five or ten years is the same conversation I felt like we were having and that actually people have been having for decades before that, 
has been turned into one about consent education at the moment. Mm. And it's the nuance around consent and the communication involved in consent and the what's respected and what's ignored that I think speaks to what Bridie's saying around privilege and taking advantage if I can, as opposed to setting out. But I, I never believed that we had to spend too much time in the psychology of the offender's mind to understand sexual violence. I think mm. that's interesting, but it's a rabbit hole. Mm. And um, because the unique thing in, in every situation is someone else's needs, someone else's rights, someone else's body has been ignored um, in favour of one other person's. And I think that's that's the fundamental imbalance of power. Someone can, so they do. Which is not an individual psychology issue. It's an issue about our culture. And, I mean, that's what Thordis, who is the Icelandic woman in that conversation, says is, is how are we making people that feel like they can do that? What is that? So she's not saying it's his individual psychology um, and nor am I. But I think we have to have a conversation about, you know, because I don't believe it has ever been about the, that people don't understand consent. It is mm. that they choose to step over it. And and we're not having a conversation on why and what are, what are we doing as a culture that, that causes someone to think they can step over that. Mm. So it's not quite individual psychology. For me. Mm. Not that I think you were saying that. Yeah, I think that's a theme we want to reflect back on because um, we did talk about some of those myths 20 years ago as well. But that sort of segues to the next question I was going to ask, which is what we talked about 20 years ago, were that male, males were the overwhelming number of perpetrators. Guessing that hasn't changed given the conversation we've just had about privilege. No, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. But I think we – I mean, at the time I didn't, I didn't feel like it was particularly radical to acknowledge some women who abused, especially children, mm-hmm. Um that to me it always feels like that conversation turns into someone has to win and someone has to lose. Mm. Instead of going, the more interesting thing is, what is that create what yeah. what is it in our culture that creates a preponderance of this kind of violence being used by men? Um, because when you start to look at physical violence, you see very you see um, different mosaics of patterns depending on other elements of power, age being one of those really clear ones, people with ability over people who are disabled, um, gender still as the dividing line. If we look at it through the lens of who exercises power over others against their choice or against respect for them, then you start to see really interesting dynamics Mm. depending on what thing we're talking about. Mm. And how you decide decide to divide and slice and divvy up those experiences yeah yeah but sexual violence is still something that is almost exclusively but not entirely exclusively the domain of men's violence towards others so i guess another clip that would be good to play at this point is how we raised our boys or how we raise our boys is an important um reflection I think it's about our gender, the gender construction of gender. Because if I didn't think that, there's no change. Nice, yeah. Which is why I actually think looking at gen, looking at it in gender is actually real positive, even though the community still seems to me to be really reluctant. In terms of like you know causes and long term and you know all that sort of thing, the thing that they've found the most that that rapists have in common is a background where there was a rid, really rigid gender role definitions in growing up. So there was this really strong sense of this is what being male is and this is what mm-hmm. being female is and that inherently has in it the power that, that traditionally gets put with masculinity. But I suppose that, that, that um, sadly uh, our conversation so far suggests that you don't think anything has changed around how we raise our boys and men. Well, it's an interesting question for Tim, who has raised two boys since then, so mm. he's raising. Mm. It is. Um, I always felt that Bridie alludes to something in that clip we just heard, which is why are people so resistant to a conversation around gender and how we make sense of it and how we build it as a community, not just as an individual idea. And Because I think it's hopeful if it's in gender. If it belongs to sex, well, yep. what, what are we going to do? Yep. We we have to lock a whole bunch of people up, or we have to kill them, or we, you know, like we end up in really extreme. And nothing changes, so, yep. and nothing does change because it's inherent, right? And I don't. I also don't believe it's inherent. I think um, the things that are true and inherent to human beings are: we are diverse. We tend to have an interest and a curiosity about bodies and sex and relationships, and something about how we set up. The idea of relationships between different genders means some people feel entitled to certain experiences or aspects of that. 
regardless of how anyone else feels about that. And I, I think that hasn't changed, but I think it still remains hopeful to look to gender as one of the ways to explain or understand what's going on because we can see that we can change at least some of the settings around that. I mean, if you believe that gender is exclusively inherent sex-based experience, then no, you don't have a lot of hope there. But if gender is how we make meaning of differences in bodies and then differences in roles, and if we don't limit ourselves just to the idea of male and female as expressions of gender, and then we have a lot of room to do things differently. And I think that conversation's absolutely taken off in this Me last too. And years. I was going to say that is where the hope is, is that that next generation, and it may take time, it mm. takes time for them to be in, in the world in a different way, that next generation, that their concepts of gender are so different, mm. like really massive change there. And so I think that will flow into it or could flow into it. I mean, it's interesting because in people think that gender equity, like it's often the strategy that governments will take. Um, but in countries that have really good gender equity measures like Sweden, there has not been a commensurate reduction in violence against women because it is, it's part of what you need to have. But it's still, for me, we've got to have the conversation about the entitlement that goes with, with whatever forms whether that's about ability, disability. We've, we're not comfortable, I think, as humans having conversations about privilege, about our own privilege. I was going to say, saying yeah. I, I am privileged, I have to own that yes. and, and reflect on that. Yes. Yeah. But you touched as well on before the consent um, training that I guess they're teaching our children now at schools. Even that, having the conversation, do you think that that helps just to even open up the discussion? Yeah, I think it's a conceptual toolkit, if I was going to go a bit academic about it. I'll do that. Bright is given the all clear. I think I, I have some reservations, I guess, in how that has how the response to those calls has unfolded. Mm. Partly because I think um, for some schools, for some educators, for some systems, the answer has been, well, let's just find the lesson on consent and insert that somewhere in the year, and we've ticked the box around. Yeah. We've provided you with what you asked for, but. It's not actually what this next generation is asking for. They're asking for a radically different kind of engagement with them around what it all means and how you know where you're positioned in it and what the conversations can look like that are better, that are more respectful, that what it looks like to ask for pause, what it looks like to say no, what it looks like to say yes with a really positive, enthusiastic kind of aspect. So there are some really good things about that. But my big reflection, and partly it came from your invitation here as well, I was talking with Bridie, and then I went to a seminar recently where I heard um, Katrina Marson interviewing, um, I've lost the name for a moment, Saxon Mullins. And I thought there was a bit of me sitting there going, this is the same conversation. Mm. And then I thought, of course it is, because every generation has to grapple with and, and reinvent this conversation for itself mm. in its time, in its context. Mm. And actually, we we can't do it in the 1990s and then it's done for all time. Mm. Yes. Or else we don't have new human beings, right, who have to mature and develop and find their way through this. What we need to offer them is a diversity of models of how that looks that reflect and speak to their time, their experience, and give them the space. So I feel enormously privileged, really, that I started my working life working with the, the older sisters from Second Wave Feminism who set all these services up. Mm. And I've, I'm still working towards the end of my working life with this next cohort of young people coming in and radically asking for the conversation. And there's a bit of you that can roll your eyes. And, and I actually am jaded sometimes, don't worry. <laughs> Where it's a bit like, oh, thanks for joining the conversation. You know, like some people have been blooding their faces against yeah. this brick wall for a long time. And for decades before I joined it as well. And, you know, the, the earnestness of it and the freshness of it is both the upside and the most irritating thing about it if you've been doing it for a long time because you're like, thank goodness, here's the baton, keep going, keep running. Yeah. And another bit of you is like, where have you been, you know, all this time, which is, again, sort of reflecting today on a conversation 20 years ago, a lot of which hasn't changed. For me, it's about teasing out, well, what bits can't change because they have to happen again and again? And what are the bits that maybe have moved because our social conversation has changed so much? And I think that, that those changes we were talking about with gender will will have an impact on that generation if they're not bound by those things. You know, I think about the young, because I mostly worked when I was working at Rat Crisis with young women. 
is that they wouldn't have those conversations. Like, so even if they'd been taught about consent and what that conversation might look like, they were not empowered enough to have those when they were in those situations mm. with young men. And I think that might be different if the construction of gender looks as different as it does for this generation. So that's where the hope in that sits for me. Because that, And that comes back to privilege. They didn't have the privileged position to take up space to say, actually, I want to slow down. I want to stop. They didn't know how to do that. And hopefully maybe they do now. I think if if the gender roles aren't as rigid, there's got to be more room in that to go, hold on, that's not what I want. We talked a lot 20 years ago about myths. We've got a long clip here where we went through the many myths of sexual assault then. We might play that and then come back and reflect on those all those various myths. There is a bit of a myth and it's been um, pushed a bit by, by some recent advertising as well, the idea that if you were abused, sexually abused as a child, then you're going to go on and abuse others. Um, evidence is is actually more to the contrary, that most people who experience sexual violence do not go on and abuse others. Mm -hmm. um, maybe maybe 14% do. Mm -hmm. um, but what we also know is that maybe 10% of people who weren't abused also go on and, and sexually abuse others. So yes. you've got like a 4% difference, yes. um, which is just statistically really. irrelevant. Mm -hmm. um, so what it means is that there's um, some people in the community who will rape and sexually abuse um, and most people who are survivors most men who are survivors um, make really clear decisions that then that they're never going to put anyone else put, in that position right. that, yeah. we we're talking about uh, weapons before as sex was the weapon is is it you know, a high proportion that they use guns or what knives or something in rapes or is it not common no. I think the current statistics vary between 7 and 14 percent depending on whether you're talking to police um, or agencies, and I think ours would be lower. And I think the police see more assaults where there was a stranger wielding the, the knife with the balaclava leaping out behind the bushes mm -hmm. because someone finds that easier to tell the police than someone in my family. They're more likely to be believed by the police when they get there, and they're actually more likely right. to have injuries. So would this be date rape that would be the problem, or is it...? Um... See, I've got, a, I've got a problem with the, the term date rape. Mm -hmm. um, while I understand what it's saying, given that most sexual assaults are by somebody you know, I actually don't see that they're that different. But mm -hmm. what it automatically conjures up is a bit of a picture that somehow in my head, in watching the community, the community sees it as a somewhat less important assault, that she was probably pissed too, that they were probably out together and she liked him in the first place. Yeah. That's right, that it minimises what happened. And so I don't like the term. Um, but I, and I don't actually think that is what's happening. It's again, it's people who are friends, who are um, current partners, ex-partners, um, you know, residents. yeah, who share residents. It's actually that it's not the stuff around walking home from the bar, or not to say that doesn't happen. Mm. Um, but it wouldn't be what I would be seeing as the majority of what's happening. The vast majority of sexual assaults are planned, um, mm. at least a week in advance, if not longer. Mm. Um, yeah, which contributes to the thing about power that. Do you know that not, if it was random, like that, I think that's a bit of the picture, particularly around the notion of date rape, around you know the spontaneous overcome with sexual urges stuff. But that's it's just a lot of crap. Yeah, and it's actually planned. They have access to sex. Most most rapists are in relationships, mm. um, but yeah, the vast majority are planned. And sometimes in terms of children, they're actually planned for years. Mm. That'd be the same with male rape. Too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think most of the stuff that we talk about tonight is equally applicable to to men and women, men and women as victims of sexual assault. So we went through a number of myths there. I think we had that um, being sexually abused as a child does not mean you're going to go and become a perpetrator. Majority of sexual assault is planned. You're far more likely to know the perpetrator than for them to be a stranger. It's not the man in the balaclava jumping out of the bushes. Uh, and uh, we've already talked about quite a bit, sexual assault is about power. Given all the conversations, we've already had a, a discussion about some of them already today, um, do you think some of those myths still remain held in the community? I feel like the one – sorry to always jump in, you know, when you have an opinion about something – that one about the balaclava and I think it's almost – I feel like it's in my bones and my blood that I am frightened if I hear a noise at night that might be a stranger outside. I'm not frightened about the friends that I let in or even the workmen, although I do sometimes think about them um, – and so I feel, and I feel like that's also what hinders that conversation that Tom and Thordis are talking about is, um, and, and it causes a polarization that somehow if someone 
rapes or, or commits a sexual assault, that they become other in a way that's, yeah, that we immediately get frightened. It brings to mind a story, a friend, a friend rang me and said her housemate had been date raped, was the term she used, um, and asked how that, you know, what she should do and she felt awful because she was home and just thought it was, you know, a um, consensual act. And I said, you know, she'd done all the right things and I just reassured her and I said, oh, but bear in mind he might rock up and go, gee, that was a hoot, wasn't it? Do you want to do it again? And he did and she completely froze. Now, she wouldn't have done that if she didn't know he'd committed that act. It's like somehow it's something hardwired in us to suddenly see that as other and I, I that it's messy and complicated but I think it holds us back from having the conversations we need to have so you make change. human being, something innate, some instinct takes over yes and then we stop seeing them as human and i mean that's what daughters talks about a lot she's we've got to humanize the people that commit this because we created them and we need to understand that and be responsible in that and um so it's all connected for me in there so i feel like i'm hardwired to worry about the stranger still in my Mm. bone tim i think that speaks to um the difference between where we are objectively at risk and where we perceive risk and the places where we feel scared, uh, that's uh, that's what that scenario means. The, you know, the dark place sort of on my own, like objectively if you're on your own, you're not at risk of someone else harming you, right? But yeah. the thing is it's dark, I don't know what's out there, it's unfamiliar, It's it plays to, we would talk a lot about the kind of the cultural mythology that descends to us through the centuries you know, every culture has got stories about the werewolves and the vampires mm. and the, the things that live outside the community in the that come in and harm us in the dark. And it may be, I think, um, it reflects a few things I think are grounded in reality. Adults are always hairier than children <laughs> and men are typically hairier than women. Mm-hmm. And so I think the hairy story's kind of got a, mm. a, a source somewhere uh, in there. That's, it's, that's mm. a wondering. I don't have any kind of, you know, objective research on that. I think that's part of the cultural story that we inherit. Um, We still, only only, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were, had a symposium for the Safer Girls, Safer Women project, which is looking at preventing sexual violence against women and girls with disabilities. And lots of, uh, it was an entirely, all of the speakers, all of the performers were women with disability themselves, which is actually, it's really weird to sit in 2022 and go, why aren't all events about women with disabilities by and for mm. women with mm. disabilities? But here we were doing something pioneering and innovative. And um, and it was amazing because one of the things that really struck me was just how variable um, the transport situation is for women with disabilities and how unreliable it is. And someone told a story of being delivered to the wheelchair accessible station, you know, in rural Victoria, which is well out of town. And then the taxi didn't pick her up for an hour and a half. And it, she just felt so enormously vulnerable. And again, objectively probably wasn't at any particular risk. And yet that was the time and the place that she felt scared because too much was uncertain, too much was um, unpredictable, um, and the, the level of vulnerability that, that she felt in that situation was very high. So I think we have to respect the perceived sense of risk mm-hmm. at the same time as understanding it's not the same as the, um, the objective risk of harm, which is what all those myths speak to, which mm-hmm. is in reality it's more likely to be someone that you know than it is some stranger, but we invest a lot of our mental energy and cultural energy on, on stranger danger. Yeah, the, the media, the, the, the government response... Off, you know, we need the responses to probably both the objective and the perceived risk. But perhaps the, it sounds like it continues twenty years later that we're still putting a lot of energy into the perceived rather than the objective risk. Perhaps I, I do feel like we have been a little bit effective on the conversation. Um, I think we used to, as, as educators do this myths and facts kind of exercise. And I know it, I had a colleague in Queensland who really critiqued it. She just, cause what she saw people doing and just kind of throwing a whole lot of facts about myths and facts about sexual assault on the board. And I said, yeah, but that's the start of the, the, the bit that you do is then unpack what that means mm. about how does that prevent us from telling about something that's happened to us? What, how does that stop us from believing and just genuinely being present and supporting someone? It was in the analysis of those around the gap between the story we tell ourselves as a community and then the diverse reality of what sexual violence can look like that we see people being silenced. And we always expected that if we got this right, 
we would see increases in reporting, right? Because we believe we're starting from such a low base. And we, we are, I still believe, though, I don't think we might have moved from 10 to 20% maybe, but we still don't confidently believe we're hearing through our criminal justice system about all the violence that occurs. So that work, I think, is having an impact. And I, the other myth in the male sexual violence space that I think is different is I feel like the whole homophobic undertone to the conversation has almost evaporated in 20 years, whereas that was this central issue um, for men and boys and it prevented them speaking and it, it added to their layers of shame and I just think something has collapsed underneath that for most people. Not for all, but for most. It's a nice segue to risk factors. We have another clip from 20 years ago, so let's play that one. 98, 96% of the guys who responded to the survey had been sexually assaulted under the age of 25. So being a young person was the biggest thing that stood out because there's obviously the power difference as a child or as a, a young person. What did also come out of that, that survey we did was um, it seemed that boys were more likely to be assaulted um, for a shorter amount of time by a larger number of people over the, their, their life, over their adolescence and childhood, whereas um, for young women the story seems to be about one or two perpetrators over a very long period of time. Right. Um, Boys seem to be abused by a range of people um, at different times of their lives. So after the last 20 years, there's been many inquiries, um, lots of focus on this space. Uh, do you think we've learned anything more about these factors? I think that those inquiries in the Royal Commissions and have have are partly responsible for that collapse underneath about what we know and think about for male survivors. Um, I mean, I think it's the conversation, the, the gender fluidity that's also occurring for that next generation, but I do think those commissions had a, a part to play in going, this is what happened to these children. And it was so crystal clear um, about, about what that was that I think that's probably contributed to that collapse that you're talking about. Maya, I would revise slightly what I said 20 years ago, which is I think I told a story then that was gender segregated, but actually I think what those royal commissions and inquiries have told us is the experience of abuse in institutional settings is different in, in a couple of characteristics from that at home. I mean, I always yeah. felt like it was a remiss of that royal commission to not talk about the family as an institution. Mm. Yes, it was um, called institutional. Yeah, in but, title, it did, but it, it excluded yes. abuse not inside... Yes. Literal agencies, institutions. Um, and in a sense, that's kind of masked or it's probably reinforced some myths and it's uncovered and changed some others. So I would say for children in out-of-home care, um, as a, whatever the language was we used over the last hundred years, their experience is much more similar of um, maybe briefer but many, many more offenders than people who are abused more in the famali familial family context, which is probably one perpetrator for a longer period of time, just and because of how access works. And, and that's regardless of gender is what you're saying. Yes. That's more yeah, the, the I don't setting. think gender explains that anymore. I think that's setting. And we were hearing, I think, most of the men I would have worked with in SAMHSA that, or that, that 20 years ago would have had some kind of abusive experience in an institution outside of the family. There were I worked with quite a few adolescents who had had neighbours or extended family members as their abuser, um, but I worked with a lot of adult men um, who were coming to grips with what they had experienced to children in, in institutions. Maybe now we might move on to, well, what we thought might be solutions 20 years ago. If you're reflecting on where we might be going, um, perhaps I'll have a listen to that and then see where, where what actually happened. Um, the community recognising who it really is, that it's not some freak behind a bush with the knife, you know. It's, it's people we know places that we frequent all the time and if we're going to be realistic about dealing with it we're going to have to recognise that. And some people, you know, I was just thinking about that, that I have just recently read one thing that has worked around trying to reduce that recidivism rate which was a um, in Canada, one of the native Indigenous people of America's work have done this program where the community was just rampant, like it was the most amazingly high rates of sexual abuse and they've had the communities actually ask those perpetrators to be accountable. And so they do what's called a community circle where they get they get judged and there is actually a legal judge, but the community are also there. 
and they all feed into what actually they think should happen. Mm. And some of that will depend on, of course, whether the, the perpetrator will take any responsibility. But what seems to be coming out from that article is it is the only thing I've seen where they are starting to take responsibility. Mm. And there was a really good bit in that where this young woman had been sexually assaulted by her uncle and when she used to get, you know, the effects would come up she was feeling really awful or really angry, she'd just go and find him and tell him how mm. horrible he was and what he'd done to her and he'd just go and... I was about to say sorry. that. Is victims confronting the mm. assaulters the, the best way to deal with it? I think if it's a choice, I don't think it would, you know, in that case it was great because she wanted him to hear how he had affected her and was still affecting her. But I think... My I problem think with that, though, is if you're feeling bad about it, if you're feeling bad, aren't you just, like, reasserting the power thing for him? He might get... He might like that, that you're feeling bad. Isn't that an option? That depends on how much responsibility is taken for his actions and a willingness to, to recognise that that's really hurt someone else and... Um, to feel some remorse about that. Yeah, some, some guy would get a kick out of that, yeah. the idea that they continue to have an effect yeah. um, for years later. But I think in that example you saw um, a whole community saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to make you accountable. And it was accompanied yeah. by intense counselling. Yeah. Kids were removed for a time and then, you know, brought back into the family and um, it seems to be working brilliantly. So much and better than anything Canada, we've seen. Yeah, say? it was in Canada right. with some of the Indigenous Canadians. Is there a chance that, that could happen, happen here in Australia? I don't think there's a community we're anywhere near ready for it yet. But <laughs> So it's interesting, Brody, you told a similar story earlier today in some ways. So that, that restorative justice approach, are we ready for it now? Do you in think? Australia? In Australia, yeah. Bits of it, but possibly not. I mean, I agree. I, listening to that, I was like, oh, I'm still in exactly the same place. It's about accountability. Or maybe, maybe we are in the same, like we're not ready yet. We're in the same place. But definitely for me, it's still about accountability and the humanity that, that somewhere in that, that's the, what's going to ultimately um, change it. Do I think we're ready for it? I don't really, but there's an interesting book that's come out in there's sure there's many in the twenties, but that was relatively recent, which was Jess Hill's book, Look What You Made Me Do. Um, is that the right title? See what you made me see what you made me do, which is about domestic violence. But and it's similarly looking for how do we change this? How do we have that conversation? And she describes a case in America where they did exactly really the same thing. Because they've got this the way their counties work, they can really do things that we as jurisdictions find very difficult anyway. So the, the community and the county decided they were going to make a real difference about domestic violence. And they all they would get early offenders, take them into a hall, and on the stage would go various people. So the police would go and say, if you so much as sneeze, we're going to get you. If we hear that you have touched her again, we will get you for a broken light. We'll kick the light if we need to. They had the FBI, they had like one after the other said, this is what will happen if you do this again. And so it wasn't about her and him anymore. It became about the community saying, we're now taking responsibility that we don't want your behaviour and we will take action on and your behaviour. And we're behavior. holding you accountable as yes. a community. Um, so I th- and she, does, she also in that book describes a, 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 tri- a trial of a um, program in Burke that's not quite the same, but he's starting to look at that how do we – how do we hold them accountable but also in a humane way recognise their humanity and talk about them as our members of our family and our communities? So, yeah. It's sort of empowerment. That that, that example you've given is the community taking responsibility yes. and they, it's the opposite. It's, um, yeah, empowering people, which I, I love that. Any reflections, Tim? I think um, in the early 2000s I was vehemently opposed on principle to restorative approaches to sexual violence because, um, one, I just thought restorative justice was this kind of silver bullet that was going to fix everything. But I've actually changed in the 20 years. I think, uh, and it comes back to to something Bridie said 20 years ago and just repeat it again now, which is if with support and choice, I think it can be amazingly powerful, but it's underutilised. It's poorly understood by lots of the rest of the system. And I know that even from a workshop looking at children in out-of-home care and um, harmful sexual behaviours in you know eight to fourteen year olds that I was in just in December, that the restorative justice team here in the ACT is ready and willing for people who meet the criteria and the referrals aren't coming. And I think um, one other reflection I think is with all of the really big high profile cases, politicians mm. who've had um, allegations made against them, some of them proved, some of them not. Um, We still aren't ready as a community and I think 
we struggle to hold people accountable for very much more than of sort of a slap on the wrist immediately and then you kind of go away for six weeks and then you'll kind of come back in some kind of form. I think that's what we've seen in our politics and in our media is when someone's done something wrong, they've been benched effectively and then brought back. Mm. Um, there's been very little of this idea that I know I formed at the time that we were working together, which is offenders need to understand that their relationship of trust with the community has been breached and it's Absolutely. fundamentally different now. You don't get to work in those yeah. careers anymore. Mm. You don't get to be unsupervised in positions of trust that you could exploit. And I've even, I've seen that much broader than just sexual violence um, in all kinds of ways, this sort of sense of, well, I've done my time or I, you know, I, I paid the civil penalty or I served some time. And so now everyone else has to pretend like the slate is clean and we have to forget and have no memory of what you did before rather than going, mm -hmm. I think true responsibility would look like I understand that what I did has changed that. And so I position myself differently in my relationships in this community, in my work, in my family, in, in my social relationships, um, so that that can't ever happen again. And I don't think we're quite ready as a community because we seem to want to kind of move on quickly. We like the redemption, what should, the redemption we do, story. Sure. Yeah. And I think this requires us to hold memory and forgiveness in balance. A forgiveness that says we you're still here you're an, you're another human being you're a part of our society but that relationship is now different requires us to remember what went before and i think that's maybe maybe that's too big a mental load for us i think that's exactly what daughters and tom mm. achieved I agree. and i wish everyone would watch it i wish i would like every student in school to watch that because i think it's really it really shifted the ground for me about watching that and and he's he's and that's exactly what he does and she doesn't it, – it's not like she excuses and says that was then and we've reached this point and now that's ended. It's not. Um, it is a lifelong um, – Yeah, I was going to say, so the idea of restorative justice isn't one, one conference or one discussion. It's it's an ongoing journey that it will take well, I think forever. it could be, but I think the way we currently yes, view restorative – Yes, way. and the way we currently apply it. And I, I think that has made a whole lot of us in the violence against women space really resistant to that concept of restorative justice. And for me, accountability is – it's got to be with accountability, mm. and I'm not sure we always get that quite quite right. It's a, it's hard work that yeah, I think is. we're not willing to sustain as a whole community. And the system's not really geared for that, is it? No. That ongoing. No, it's punish and move on, punish yes. and move on. Yes, which um, I think is contrary to what we're talking about here. Which is for the person harmed, the world has changed. Mm. For the community they live in, the family that they live in, the world is changed. For the perpetrator, the world is changed. And we have to, we can't, we have to walk from that point, not kind of go, oh, we want to go back to somewhere where it yeah. didn't happen. And it's like, well, okay, then you have to go, I don't know, live a different life. This is the one we're in. So you mentioned there a little bit about the effects on the victim, uh, the survivor. So we might just play some discussion we had about that then and and, um, and reflect on where we are now. Um, I guess the... For a lot of women, it's that in some way they'll think it's their fault, mm -hmm. which is all those myths that you know about. It's about what you wear, where you went, mm -hmm. like all those sort of things. So um, one of the effects is that women feel like it's their fault. They mm -hmm. feel like no one will believe them. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, because the most dominant picture out there is that psychopathic stranger leaping out from behind the bushes. And so they don't think anyone's going to believe that, you know, their nice uncle who's, that you know, this really rich lawyer person mm -hmm. or whatever the story is. Um and then the effects range, you know, a lot of the symptoms are a bit like what's called post-traumatic stress disorder, um, particularly if the abuse has been ongoing. So it's a, a long-term trauma damage that would that, that are similar to the effects that come from any form of trauma. Um, and so, you, you know, that's it, there's quite um, a number of ways that you can work with that. But I would say those, you know, the effect of trauma, really, mm -hmm. which is, you know, ranges from shock, nightmares, reliving the experience, um, being shut down emotionally, um, all of those sort of things, which are in terms of long-term effects that something like 80% of women who, you know, in various surveys they found who abuse drugs and alcohol or, mm -hmm. or who are attending treatment centres are survivors of sexual assault. Um, it's between 80 and 90% of women in Australian prisons yeah, um, are incest survivors. Yeah. yeah, which makes sense because most women in Australia are actually in for drug offences, so those well, two are really strongly connected. Yeah. connected. What about severe depression? 
Would that be a common? Oh, absolutely. We have this little bigger get into our drop bear theory. That <laughs> you'd, hear, you'd hear that, you know, people in the suicide sectors and homelessness and, and all, you know, those sort of ones. And they'll just talk about like depression like it's just this thing that drops out on randomly mm-hmm. on adolescence. And I would say if you under, un, underneath that is in fact a whole lot of trauma. And the guy that's head of the um, Department of Psychiatry at Harvard University says very much the same thing, that if you actually looked at... Um, trauma, abandonment, I forget what the other ones he says, you could actually rule out a whole lot of other categories in one of them, which of course would be depression. Mm. So yeah, I think that you know the long-term effects include homelessness and suicide attempts and drug and alcohol abuse and, and, and um, admissions to mental health system where mm. they will be labelled with a whole lot of various sort of things, but not usually trauma. Mm. Would the effects be similar, Tim, for Yeah, I'd just say, assault? ditto, there's one... one that's particular to men as well, that's different from um, women's experience, um, which being that we live in a a fairly homophobic culture, Mm -hmm. um, is questions about, does this make me gay? Does the guy who did it to me, is is he gay? Um, Will people think I'm gay if I Mm. talk about it? Um, So a whole lot of fears around sexuality, body image, gender roles. As a man, I'm supposed to protect myself Mm. and I'm strong and um, and rape pretty much undermines that sort of sense of, oh, well, why couldn't I protect myself? So, Tim, you've already covered off on the the last one there on homosexuality. It seems that there's been an improvement over the last 20 years in that space. But in terms of the other effects, do you think there's been much change? Do you know, I think actually that's the bit that has changed the most now as I listen to that again. I actually think um, 20 years ago it felt like we were, especially in our professional training for others, it was illuminating to people the relationship between sexual violence and then a set of trauma symptoms and the and the issues that they might be dealing with in their work. And I actually think that is universally understood now, except possibly just superficially, because everyone at the moment talks about trauma-informed and uh, trauma-responsive, and it's still like we're scared to say what the traumas were, so it, it still becomes a mediator of the, of the let's talk about what those experiences were. So, oh, it's trauma, childhood trauma. You're like, yeah, there's a lot of those. What, what kind are we talking about here? And maybe it doesn't matter so much, but I feel like maybe it was also me being new in the work that that I just think that's much more mainstream across health and human services industries now. Like there is a uh, even a um, preoccupation or a focus on kind of doing trauma informed. Our team recently did it as well, and. Um, it's about starting a conversation around how responsive we we are and how well we're doing that work. But I feel like that was kind of outlier conversation maybe for the first 20 or 30 years of rape crisis of life. And I think I remember Di Lucas saying something at the 30th anniversary, which was, we haven't stopped saying what we were saying, but the police and the rest of the community mm. have moved into different positions around it. Mm. Um, so what was absolutely a lunatic fringe kind of voice, you know, in the 1970s is mainstream conversation around how we do human services now. And I think more than some of those other factors we've discussed today, that one has probably moved the most, where there is at least an acknowledgement that imprisonment rates and, and um, drug and alcohol use and suicide all don't just aren't drop bears. They don't just sort of land on people randomly. They, we know a lot more about what happens in people's lives and that those are behaviours that respond to unresolved troubles, lost grief and trauma. Was, and Bessel van der Kolk is no longer uh, at, yeah. at Harvard. <laughs> um, you know, so things that have changed in the last 20 years. Um, he remains amazing, however. Yeah, totally. And, yeah, I think that's a different conversation that we're having now. People are more open to understanding what's below the symptom, at least uh, at least superficially. It's still really, really hard work to do at the, at the coalface and it burns people out and I still don't know that we're always very good in human services around supporting people to stay with that. So that hasn't changed. What went into my head was, you know, a recent very high-profile case and the vilification of the mm. victim mm. by the media and the community and, again, that dichotomy around you were either you know, that you took a side and you had to be really mm. polarised yes. in that, um, which comes back to, to my thing about, and, and that is the effect, you know, the young women that I worked with, the biggest thing for them was the self-blame and shame and mm-hmm. and the guilt. Um, and I watched what the community does and go, I don't know. that. I mean, I absolutely agree with your 
that there's a better understanding of trauma and its effects. But I think for the individual women, that that inability of ours to have that conversation in that tricky space and not do the polarising and the vilification of victims um, probably still has means those effects are probably still mm. happening for victims. Um, Brody, you mentioned a high-profile case a moment ago. I've been really careful in our conversation, partly because of my day job, not not yeah. to talk about the system, yes. the legal system, so that's why we sort of left it to last. But um, really, yeah, 20 years ago, we talked about the system. Um, I think the, the overwhelming view you had then was that it, it's not. It's not a measure of success. It's not. It's not um, there to re-empower the victim. The criminal justice system does what it does, um, but it is not the the answer to many of the issues that we're facing. So I, th- I was just wondering, twenty years on, how is we've talked a little bit about restorative justice sort of creeping in? How is the criminal justice system going? And it's hard not to have some of those high-profile cases in our minds when we ask that question. I still don't think you know. And it's been interesting doing some being in the policy area for government, and and that includes the national policy for violence against women and locally. That I still I still feel like we're fighting to say responses to perpetrators are more than a men's behaviour change program. It's about a whole system of accountability through the courts, through restorative justice, through offering programs, through offering counselling that I think is still missing. I don't think the legal system sees itself as a mechanism of accountability, and which is why I like that chapter in Jess Hill where, she, where they clearly did. They, was, they were saying, we, we don't want this in our community and so we're going to step into a space that says we're going to hold perpetrators to account. And, you know, the... Duluth model, which is what most people that really sits under our domestic violence responses, mostly in this country, was very strong on that accountability being really important. And I don't, I just, I just don't see it. I'm consistent. I consistently kept having to add, there are more systems for perpetrators than simply a men's behaviour change program. Mm. So I don't think we've quite shifted our head to their responsibility for accountability. And and sorry, Tim, I want to hear your views in a minute. I was just going to say that it, it feels like the, the criminal justice system is still the pathway. To, to that is that is that still the best pathway to get to those sorts of I think responses? it's part of the res- part of it and so but it's more than it's like Tim said a minute ago it's not their job just to punish or to find the truth it is to to hold when we do find that to hold perpetrators to account in a particular way that I just don't think it sees itself as that yet the legal system sees itself and it's not a but because I, I would agree with all of that. I might even be slightly more pessimistic than you on that. In <laughs> fact, I actually, I think as a society, we still point to the criminal justice legislative response as, as well, that's how we'll fix it. So we see things like uh, reform around consent laws. And it's like, of course it's great. Of course it's good. We want ha- to have, uh, but it's just as important as a marker of our community standard. Um, and I got asked actually in the inquiry around the ACT amendment where I gave some evidence a couple of years ago, will this reduce offending? And I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, like the immediate effect of changing the law is not that someone goes, Oh, so sorry. <laughs> I didn't know that. Is that no where the affirmative consent? That's, I didn't know that was that, the thing. That was, oh, yeah, wow. I, I'll just change what I'm doing. Um, and yet, so we're, so if you hang around long enough, like Bridie and me, um, you get to see a lot of things. We've had two significant, uh, a big round sort of the mid-2005, 2006, big focus on improving the criminal justice response to sexual violence and that introduced some reforms to certain processes. Um, and then one even just at the end, in the second half of 2021, um, the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response um, was initiated by Yvette Berry, ACT government, brought together a lot of community stakeholders and we worked really hard and intensely like COVID wasn't happening um, for about six months. And still, there was a lot of emphasis on how can we fix what the criminal justice system is doing. At least this time we had a response and a prevention working group working alongside, which was the innovation, I suppose, or the the difference. Um, So yeah, I think we keep going back there as the answer. And we keep discovering, and each generation has to discover something about how our criminal justice system works. And that when you are a victim, you are a witness to the offence for the Crown's case. That's your role. And it shocks people. That's your role. It's not there to make you feel better. It's not there to acknowledge the, the, the fullness of your experience and all of its impacts. It's interested in your account only to the extent that it proves or disproves an argument that's being put against a set of legal principles that most of the rest of us in the community don't. 
fully get. And the irony of that is, yeah, you're absolutely right. And the irony of that is, I suppose, is that that's meant to be the community holding the defendant to account. That and and that's been the you know real theme of what we talked about today. Um, but as a result of its sort of archaic, clumsy way of doing that, it doesn't it doesn't really do that, and nor does it. Um, it struggles to do it well and it, it does it within a very limited focus. I totally agree with Bridie. I think it, we've got to see it as one of a series of our tools and resources as a community to respond. And for some people, it's probably the most damaging thing they could do. Mm-hmm. And yet it's often, it's kind of seen as the, the gold standard of response is that a, a, a prosecution is brought to successful conviction and we all know that it really happened right so that just suggests that the question is still there in our minds as a community we all know that it happened beyond a reasonable doubt with a bar that was set when we used to string people from rope and kill them and it mattered it, i just couldn't go well bridey was mean to me last week in the street if the outcome was she was going to hang then it mattered that beyond reasonable doubt you agreed that my accusation was true right but it, that we we removed capital punishment and death penalties, and we haven't updated some of the principles that go with what drives. This is the part that I think we need to unpack more is legal uh, legal literacy in our community um, that lets people play their part appropriately when they're in it. And we do need justice at arm's length. I'm not like one of the worst things for community safety outcomes is we let the vigilantes lose, mm. even though there are days when I'm totally up for that, that program. <laughs> yes, um, but what happens is it drives offenders to places where they are unsupervised, unseen, and that's actually more dangerous for the next set of kids or the, ne- mm. or the, the woman next door or mm. the, the new partner than if we actually know where they are and they're being supervised and supported. And so, that still brings, and that, that's my point, it is more than the court case. The legal system is a bigger thing and has a role to play in eyes on perpetrators um, and responding to, um, you know, breaches of orders and those things. There is more that they can do than just the trial. Our legal system is much bigger than that with a whole lot more money and resources Mm -hmm. than that. And that is what Duluth talked about was they worked alongside the support for victims and the support for perpetrators all together because they all had a part to play. But the legal system is bigger than the court case. Yeah, so you're saying perhaps... um Violence orders and this the sort of civil system rather than the criminal system response. All of it. There is all of it. And then what do they do? Monitoring. Yes. What yeah. do they do when they have the perpetrators who have been convicted? What are they doing when they release them? Like there's a whole system there that I don't think sees itself as part of the system of mm. accountability yet. And I don't think we see it as that. Either. It's still so siloed, isn't yes. it? Like we are seeing things like yes. conduct schemes in for teachers and that kind of thing. The working with vulnerable people, you know, the old police checks only told mm. you that someone hadn't been convicted of an offence on the day we looked. And and now we have a more dynamic kind of information gathering. And, it, and it's so Which I is guess sort of national. Yes, yes. Of. and yes. they're starting to talk to each other. And we've got NDIS worker screening now that is national. Mm. So, so we have good ideas around systemic responses, but it is so slow, isn't yeah. it? Like, and I think that's the um, it's where we rediscover the issue and we kind of go, the systems don't work and, and they don't. And so we do another little push and we kick a few cans along, and but it's still not this big joined up thing, I think, that that maybe we hoped for or we've aspired to. If you've worked in the victim response or in the policy or in the criminal justice space, we probably all thought that 20 years we could get a lot done. And um, people don't change that quickly. So it was an enlightening conversation 20 years ago and again today. So thank you so much for your time. We've got one more question. So what are the taboos we must face in the future as a community, do you think? I think I've named mine, which yeah. is I think we have to talk about what if, what if, and when. Um, it's my partner, my brother, mm. my son. We have to have that conversation. That's for me. That's still the taboo. Taboo. Mm-hmm. I think at the time that we did the interview twenty years ago, I saw the next big thing for feminism. This is a, a with with an awareness of that it can sound arrogant as well. But my sense was lots of the structural changes around workforce participation and women had at least on paper been addressed by the 1990s. Not necessarily the actual behaviours in workplaces, but I thought that the, the new edge for feminism is young women's expectations in their relationships with young men. And that we, I think that's what we have spent 20 years and I think the, com- the language is not what we would have used in uh, 1999, but that is the conversation that's kind of been happening. Um, the story I will tell was in that sexual assault prevention and response group, we had a really interesting debate around whether we could build a prevention strategy 
for sexual violence on two pillars, one, the gender equality one, and the other with this idea that we were calling sexual wellbeing in the prevention working group. And it was met with some really interesting resistance from places we didn't necessarily expect. Um, and it was we saw that as essential to saying we can't just go, you can't do that. We have to describe what, what mm. the positive world looks like for people to step into and that a focus on securing and protecting um, sexual wellbeing for children, young people and adults was a way of describing something that made us have the conversation in detail because gender equality is absolutely critical uh, and also uncontested in that discussion. We were just like, that is so obvious, we're, gonna, we're not going to even, we're just going to say you have to go and read all these things that our watch has written and there's your policy settings right for the gender equality bit. But here is the novel or the innovative idea, which is if, if um, sexual violence is harm using sex as a weapon, using sexual stuff as, as the means of creating harm, um, and if entitlement informs that in some kind of way, well then the world we want is one that's really focused on sexual wellbeing. Um, which is this idea of safety, of security, of control and of choice in our sexual lives around our body. I don't think it's nothing radical or innovative when you look at decades of conversation, but that particular framing. So I think we still have a sexual taboo um, that is making it difficult. And as I said, we use trauma-informed as this disguise for a whole lot of things that are still really hard for us to talk about because they are hard to talk about. They are some of the worst experiences people have. So I think we've still got taboos that are stopping us from being in the real conversation and really present with one another. But I think um, that's such a different mix than it was 20 years ago. Mm. I totally agree with that. I'm thinking about that comment I made earlier about young women might have the lesson about consent, but can they actually say, do they have... In the moment. Yes, can they do it in the moment? And that it's sexual well-being and, res- mm. and self-respect in that, that... Um, gives that space for them to do that. Taboo is written and produced by me, Sean Costello, and the amazing Melanie Skinner. You can reach us for feedback, questions, advice, or ideas for future Taboo concepts we should cover via email. Taboo, T-W-O-B-O-O podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or otherwise, we're Taboo Podcast. Don't forget the T-W-O on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. We're back soon with another episode of Taboo.